You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. I think the biggest threat today of API is lack of authorization or basically lack of permission check. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, the phishing schemes, and the criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. We got some good stories to share this week. And later in the show, my conversation with Inan Shkedi, a security researcher at Traceable and API project leader at the OWASP Foundation. We're going to be talking about insider threats and APIs. All right, Joe, uh, before we dig into stories, we got some follow-up from a listener who uh, wrote in to talk about some special steps that he took when closing uh, for the loan on his house. This is something mm-hmm. we've talked about many times is a, a popular place for scammers to try to insert themselves because when you're buying a house, there's big money in play. Right. There's a lot of money moving hands and they want to get in there and redirect it to their pockets. Right. And it can be confusing because there's a lot of things going on. There's lots of paperwork and it also it also seems to be a transaction where many parties involved allow things to happen at the last minute. Right. right? Yes. <laughs> Very I frustrating. Know, I don't know if that's just what happens here in the U.S., but... The, the the couple of times that I've been involved with this, that's what happened. And the realtors kind of, they kind of nod and smile and say, yes, that's just how it works. Just right. it'll, it'll all come together. Don't worry. It'll all come together. But at any rate, our uh, listener wrote in to share with us some of the steps that he took. Uh, and I think it's worth sharing. He wrote in and he said, despite several other security checks and precautions that I already took well in advance, the afternoon before my closing, I physically went to the settlement office to make sure I knew where it was and that it actually existed. Yeah, as soon as I walked in, I dialed the phone number I had for the firm. I heard the receptionist's phone ring, and as soon as I saw her pick up, I hung up. I then heard her say, hello, hello, hello. (laughs) Then I asked to speak to the settlement agent I had been working with. I asked her to print out a copy of the banking info for the wire transfer. Then after she did that, I asked her to initial the page. The next morning, that's what I brought to the bank for the wire transfer. No relying on email instructions, no relying on text messages, no relying on a phone call straight from the horse's mouth. He goes on and he says, I should add that during the entire home purchase process, I occasionally received phone calls and text messages from the settlement company, the lender, and the realtor. No matter who they appeared to be on my phone, because caller ID can be easily spoofed, I never answered the phone directly or immediately reacted to a text message. I had each of them as a contact I created so I could see who was supposedly calling, but that was not enough for trust. Not for me. I had all their known and certain phone numbers in a separate contact I created, and I placed all of their phone numbers in that contact. I also had their known and certain numbers on a piece of paper in my wallet. I would let the phone stop ringing when one of them called. Once it would, I would take out the piece of paper from my wallet and carefully type in the number I had for that person and call them or message them that way. Maybe this was overkill, but I have learned enough from the CyberWire and know before <laughs> to know how careful <laughs> one needs to be these days when it comes to closing on a home. So thanks a million. Well, thanks for writing in. I think a lot of people are hearing this and saying that maybe uh, our listeners taking things a little too far. But 
Why not? I mean, they, yeah. for most people, this is the biggest transaction they're going to make in their lives. Right. Right. The one thing in here I think might be overkill is keeping the numbers on a piece of paper in your wallet. Uh, if you've got them in your contacts as contacts that you have with known good numbers, chances yeah. of those being changed by an attacker are pretty remote. And that's going to require a lot of effort on their part and probably not the modus operandi of these kind of scammers. They're going to try to insert themselves with business email compromise, which you've kind of protected yourself against here and by inbound phone calls, which you definitely have protected yourself against. Yeah. There's absolutely nothing wrong with picking up the phone and going and saying, hey, uh, you need to talk to me. I will call you right back, verifying it that way or doing what this listener's done and just let it ring. And then as soon as it, it's finished ringing, calling them back. Here's what I like about having them written down in the wallet, though, is that by doing that, it inserts an automatic slowdown. Yes, right. It makes true. it makes this person slow down, get that piece of paper out, look at those numbers. And we've said this to her blue in the face. Slowing down is a great thing to try to short circuit some of these scams. So mm-hmm. I think there's some usefulness there in that. Thanks to our listener for sending this in. I think it's uh, interesting stuff and, and worth sharing. So we do appreciate it. We, we do like to hear from you all. You can uh, write us an email at hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. Well, Joe, let's uh, dig into some stories this week. Mine is a story from the folks over at Bleeping Computer, and they're actually warning folks that the Social Security Administration Inspector General, whose name is Gail Ennis, has issued an advisory uh, concerning a new wave of scams that are impersonating government employees in order to trick people into sending money. Now, I don't know. Have you ever received one of these calls where they're claiming to be from the Social Security Administration that, that you're in big trouble? I have not. Okay. I, have. I wish I had because I would <laughs> do nothing but torment these people. I, I have. And evidently, it's a pretty common scam. According to uh, the inspector general from the Social Security Administration, the scammers have taken this to the next level and they have created fake badges. I know what you want to say, Joe. You want to say it. I know you want <laughs> I to do. say it. I know badges. you just go ahead. We don't need no stinking badges. There you go. <laughs> do you feel better? I do. <laughs> All right. So I actually using... wanted to go badgers from uh, <laughs> from the Weird Al Yankovic UHF movie. <laughs> so they're creating badges that look just like the real thing. And this is not terribly hard to do. It's not hard to go online and find a copy of probably just about every official government badge that there is. Mm-hmm. So what these folks will do is they have these badges made in their own names and they use this as proof that they are who they claim to be. Of course, they're not, but right. uh, they'll send you a text uh, of a photo of one of these badges and that helps uh, to convince you that they are who they say they are. And evidently that's working on some folks. Um, the advisory from the Social Security Administration has a list of things that, that they will never do. It says they will never text or email images of an employee's official government identification. They will never suspend your social security number. They will never threaten you with arrest or other legal action unless you immediately pay a fine or a fee. They will never require payment by a retail gift card, a wire transfer, internet currency, or by mailing cash. They will never promise a benefit increase or other assistance in exchange for payment. And... uh, They will never send official letters or reports containing your personal information via email. Basically, what this comes down to is if you're going to get interactions from the Social Security Administration, it's going to be a letter in the mail, snail mail, old-fashioned stamp on an envelope, snail mail. So I think it's a good uh, warning here, a good reminder that uh, these folks have kind of 
upped their game a little bit. They've they've amplified what they're doing by creating these fake things enough to the point where uh, the inspector general of the SSA uh, feels it's worth uh, sending out a little reminder. So I think it's good information. I like to think of it this way. You've got these scammers out there working and they're, they're looking for anything they can do that can increase their results. Mm-hmm. Right. So why not make themselves look more official? I mean, I'm reminded of the movie Napoleon dynamite where uncle Rico says to Kip says, we need some way to make ourselves look official, like badges or something. Right. <laughs> right. Right. And then they, they print up a couple badges with their names on it. What does that mean? I mean, it's nothing. It's just a badge with a picture and your name on it. And they're going around selling Tupperware or something. Yeah. Yeah. Reminds me of the old uh, TV show, the Rockford files. So Jim Rockford would have a little Rolodex in his car. That was a lot of other people's business cards. And he would go and present <laughs> right. himself as being them just by handing someone the business card. He'd say, hi, I'm, you know, Joe Labivowitz from uh, Ace Insurance Company, and I was wondering about such and such, and it works. It right. absolutely works. All right, well, that's my story this week. What do you have for us, Joe? I wanted to talk about those Tom Cruise deep fakes. Have you seen these? I first heard about these thanks to a tweet from Rachel Toback. There has been tons of media buzz about this. These are deep fakes of Tom Cruise mm-hmm. doing things that are not, you know, just playing golf or doing a magic trick or talking about Mikhail Gorbachev, but they're not actually. Tom Cruise, because the deepfakes are posted on TikTok to a uh, a fake Tom Cruise account, and Tom Cruise is not on TikTok. David Gilbert over at Vice has a story on this, and we'll put a link in the show notes to it. And he says that you know a lot of people are reacting uh, strongly about it. They're saying that they're concerned about it. I'm actually very concerned about how good these deepfakes are. I showed them to my wife, and she was like, "That's Tom Cruise." I'm like, "Nope, that's not Tom Cruise." <laughs> But there's a lot of effort that went into creating these videos. Uh, they are the work of a Belgian visual effects artist named Chris Ume, or Um, I'm not sure how you pronounce it, but he's part of a group called Deep Voodoo Studios, which is a deep fake studio that has been assembled by Trey Parker and Matt Stone, who are the guys that are responsible for South Park. These are hmm. well-known American satirists who will make fun of just about anything. <laughs> Especially Tom Cruise. Especially Tom Cruise, <laughs> right. The way they've done this is Ume and his team work with a guy named Miles Fisher, who is a Tom Cruise impersonator, and they worked together to produce a video in 2019 that showed Tom Cruise announcing his presidential candidacy. That was not Tom Cruise either. It helps that this guy looks a lot like Tom Cruise and kind of sounds like him too. And the voice in these videos sounds like a younger version of Tom Cruise. And I don't know if this is an impersonation that Miles Fisher does of Tom Cruise or if they're using other audio deepfakes to make the voice sound more like Tom Cruise. I don't know what's going on here. There are some very good impersonators uh people who are very good at impressions out there. You think of people like Frank Caliendo. Do you remember Mike O'Mara from the Donna Mike show? He still has a podcast out there. Uh, And there's a guy named Charlie Hopkinson from England who is remarkably good, Mm -hmm. right, at doing famous voices. One of the things that the Vice article points out is that these deep fakes were fooled by a lot of the better deep fake detection tools. Hmm which I think is interesting. Tom Maxwell over at Input Mag has a, uh, has a story on it too, and he notes that tools by a company called Counter Social did detect that it was an inauthentic video. Hmm. But TikTok, and this is, this is really the, the crux of the matter, TikTok does not attempt to verify any video as authentic or synthetic when you upload it. It just puts it up there. And Maxwell points out that this retroactive detection is like closing the barn door after the horses have already run away, right? Hmm. 
we've got now all these fake video out there that tons of people have already seen. And now you're going around saying, nope, 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 that's a deep fake. That's a deep fake. It's going to be difficult to get in front of those if you don't detect the inauthentic video or synthetic video before you publish it. Right. The fact that TikTok doesn't have that on there is not really significant to me. I mean, it's just going to take somebody who wants to publish an inauthentic video finding a, a service that doesn't try to identify synthetic media to publish it there. I mean, it's just a matter of finding the right service to publish it on. But you look at just all of the variety of Snapchat filters are out there. You know, yeah. you alter your face, you alter your voice. And, you know, look at how many people uh, post videos of themselves where there's some kind of anti-wrinkle smoothing <laughs> algorithm. Like you know, on the camera like, lens, right? right. How is a, a filter like this supposed to differentiate between that, something that's, that is intentionally distorting what you look like, and something like a deepfake. I don't know the answer to that. that. That's a good question. With all that in mind, it doesn't bother me. I would not expect someone like TikTok to be filtering these sorts of things. Now, right. if someone brought it to their attention, then maybe they should tag it as such. But yeah. I, I wouldn't expect them to go after it proactively. And that's one of the things that Rachel Toback and a lot of other people are saying is that we need this inauthentic video uh, or synthetic video to be tagged as synthetic video. Microsoft says they're working on a way to counter this with some kind of digital signature tool where uh, hmm. companies who produce video can then sign the video. This is, I think, a good solution. I like the idea of a blockchain solution that you can combine with digital signatures. In fact, you pretty much have to do that for a public trusted blockchain anyway. Uh, you have to have digital signatures or to authenticate the transaction. I mean, you can build a blockchain without digital signatures, but that kind of defeats the purpose of building a public trusted blockchain. <laughs> Right, um, right. You, it's just it's just a data structure that's out there, but you put digital signatures into it, and only the people with the private keys can sign these transactions, like somebody saying, this is my news article here. I think that provides an added benefit as well to allow for the perpetuity of a news story. It's what prevents the Orwellian memory hole, right, mm -hmm. where people go around and change news stories or delete news stories. You can't do that once you have a signature of, of a hash of the news story on the blockchain with a reference to it or maybe even the, the entire text of the article that you've written on a public blockchain. Yeah, I think we saw the beginnings of this in this last political season. Well, there was one making the rounds that was uh, looked like uh, Speaker Nancy Pelosi was was drunk or tipsy, or you know. So you have people modifying videos to make people not look their best and things like that. I saw a remarkably large number of people on my Facebook feed sharing that video. Yeah, this is why I say that these <laughs> these social network platforms are are no place for political discussion. They're just right. not. They are prone to this kind of attack, this kind of misinformation. And they're also prone to people behaving inappropriately and feeling good about it because they are reinforced by other people who feel the same way politically as them. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, it makes me think about I have a I have a plug in for uh, Twitter that I think we discussed on this show. It, it gives uh, any anyone posting on Twitter, it gives them a percentage uh, rating as to the likelihood that they are a bot versus being a person. And I wonder if we could have something like that for videos where there's some sort of plug-in that, you know, looks at if we had something like a blockchain solution, it could look at video and say, okay, you know, we have with this amount of confidence that this is authentic or this is unaltered or, hey, we don't know anything about this, so tread carefully here. Right. Yeah. Well, the Microsoft solution was a signature on the metadata. One of the issues with building a signature on a file is you need to have the entire file before you can verify the signature. And that doesn't happen online. In fact, mm. with like with uh, a video streaming service, you generally don't get the video. You just get a stream of the video, which your computer then forgets. Right. 
Right. But you, you can sign the metadata about it and say, we're verifying that this is our video and we're asserting provenance of this artifact, whatever yeah. it is. The digital signature is easy enough to check. That's the thing. And so you could do that with a plugin or you could do it with the web page itself. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, interesting story. I will have a link to that in the show notes. Joe, it is time to move on to our catch of the day. Dave, our catch of the day comes from a listener named John. It's really a story he sent along from his son. You want to read this? Sure. It says, hello, Dave and Joe. I'm an avid listener from episode one, and you both do an excellent job providing valuable information in an entertaining way. Well, thank you, John. That's very nice. Thank you. I very much appreciate your efforts and passion. I had a situation recently that I would appreciate your opinions on. Here's the story. My son informed me he had interviewed for a job online and needed to send a photocopy of his driver's license to complete the hiring process. When I inquired for more details, he said he had responded to a job posting on LinkedIn and been through a couple of interviews on Google Hangouts. This seemed a little strange, so I dug a little deeper. The name of the person and the company he was interviewing with matched a LinkedIn profile for an HR director at a legitimate company, but it seemed strange to use a random Google Hangout for interviews. Not being the suspicious person, he sent the photocopy, and then things got more interesting. Through the Google Hangout, he was notified he had the job and that they would be sending $5,437 in a check that he was supposed to deposit and then use his own account to purchase a high-end Apple MacBook Pro from a specific vendor website they do business with. The next day, an overnight FedEx envelope arrived with what seemed like a legitimate check inside. The person on the Google Hangout followed up to verify the check had arrived and that my son should deposit the check right away through an ATM and not go through a teller. Another red flag. Mm -hmm. At this point, I had him contact the local law enforcement since this seemed like a money laundering scheme of some sort. The local officer said this was a common scam and my son should just stop communicating and forget it. I had my son file a complaint with the IC3.gov Since we had the complete Google Hangout dialogue, a FedEx envelope, a check from a bank that seemed real, and a supply company that seemed real, my son did stop the communication, and I had him go to the local DMV and get a new driver's license in case identity theft was part of the scam. From my understanding, this seemed like a money laundering scheme to me, but I would appreciate your take. P.S. After six months, there was no response from IC3, so I'm guessing this is too small for them to consider. Kind regards, John. All right, what do you make of this, Joe? Yeah, I don't know about the IC3 part. Maybe it's too small for them. Maybe they just collect the information and then try to go after things. Everything you have uh, in terms of your Google Hangout dialogue, the FedEx envelope and the check, that's all pretty much worthless unless they can maybe get fingerprints off of it. But they're probably not going to go through that kind of effort here because your son actually was not injured during the the course of this, except for the fact that he did send a copy of his driver's license. Right. Um, I think it's a good idea to have him go out and get a new driver's license, especially if you can have him get a new driver's license identifier. I don't know what state John lives in mm-hmm. uh, or actually even what country, but I'm assuming it's the U.S. This is probably just a check floating scam. It's probably not a money laundering scam. We had another listener send us an email about something very similar where uh, someone was actually scammed out of money this way. They deposited a check into their account, and then the uh, alleged employer said, well, go buy a FedEx gift card for 500 bucks and send us the picture of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's how they, they scammed that guy out of 500 bucks. What happens with that check is the next day the check bounces, and you're out any money that you spent. Right. That's how this right. works. So it's it's really just a scam to get your money. Uh, a money laundering scam looks just a little bit different. The checks will actually clear 
uh, in a money laundering scam. And it, you may or may not be aware of the fact that you're a money mule. Right, right. It seems like John did all the right things yeah, here. Agreed. And uh, happy that uh, we caught this. Yeah, you saved your son a, a lot of money, I think. <laughs> yes, a lot of money, time, and hassle. So, yes. uh, yeah, uh, he should uh, send you an extra special Father's Day card this year. That's right. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, we appreciate John sending that in. Again, we would love to hear from you. If you have a catch of the day, you can send it to hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. Joe, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Inan Shkedi. He is a security researcher at Traceable and uh, the API project leader at the OWASP Foundation. And our conversation focused on insider threats and APIs. Here's our conversation. I think it depends on how you look at insider threats because there are a few different ways to define them. But I would say that insider threat is every malicious user that gain access to the system. And there are a few different ways to gain this access and to a few different types of access. But in a very high level, is someone that actually has uh, access to the system, either if he got it from like malicious activity or just, uh, for example, someone who should have the access, like a malicious employee of the company, for example. And, and I mean, I think it's, it's important to be clear that an insider threat doesn't necessarily have to mean someone with malicious intent. Of course, right. It can be someone just uh, that he's more like a victim. So when it comes to protecting against insider threats, what sort of things are we talking about here? What, what sort of uh, recommendations do you have? There are a few different points that I would recommend for companies to take in order to protect against insider threats. The first thing is the concept of zero trust, especially in you know modern environments. It's really important to understand that you can't really trust even the, the devices and microservices that are inside your environment. You should always check for authorization and authentication and apply uh, security mechanisms. I think this is the first recommendation. The second recommendation that I would give is basically to think very clearly about the permission mechanism when it comes to access to the most important assets in your company. It's really important to define them and then to make sure that you give access only to the right people because recently you can see many companies just expose a very sensitive API or even a very sensitive database to all the employees in the company instead of giving permission only for those that should have this access. Now, isn't it the case that a lot of times uh, folks will get access to something that they may need temporarily, but then that access is left with them? It's not revoked after the fact. Exactly, exactly. And I think it's one of the results of the working remote culture because today, it's out of work to uh, every time to provide temporary access to one of the employees of the company or even like a contractor or a partner. So it gets to the situation where in many cases, the DevOps team or the IT team, instead of like providing very specific type of permissions for very specific period of time, they would just open the, like, it's like a port in the firewall, right? Instead of like open the port in the firewall for like uh, Two days, you would just open it forever. Uh, and right. think this is a very common way that attackers would get into these companies. Now, let's discuss APIs. Uh, real quickly, for folks who may not be all that familiar with what they are, can you describe to us what they are and how they work? Sure. 
So APIs, those are interfaces that uh, companies expose. It can be used by different clients. For example, you can have mobile APIs. So once you use Uber or Lyft or any other application that installed your phone, behind the scenes, it uses APIs to communicate with the servers of the company and to gain information about your account and to perform different actions. On the other hand, you can expose the APIs to your partners. So for example, if you are, let's talk about Venmo, for example, it would use APIs of different bank systems in order to communicate with them. So there are many different types of APIs, and basically they're used to perform functions behind the scenes. And so what are the security concerns with APIs? When it comes to APIs, actually I'm, I'm one of the leaders of the OWASP top 10 for APIs, which is a list that defines the top 10 threats uh, for APIs. And, mm. you know, we were working to, to define these top 10 threats, the most common threat for APIs, by analyzing uh, bug bounties reports. And after some work, we, we assembled this list. And I think uh, you can take a look at the list and see that there are 10 different threats. But if you take a look from a high level, each one of the OSP top 10 for APIs has a sense of authorization or authentication. I think the biggest threat today of API is lack of uh, authorization or basically lack of uh, permission check. Hmm. And so what can we do to prevent these sorts of things or what are the best practices for protecting yourself? So first of all, I would recommend to think about uh, this access control mechanism, you know, basically to understand which users should have access to which resources and to imply it into the code itself. This is something that you can't just think about after you implement a system. You need to, to think about those things once you start thinking about implementing a new system or a new API. So I would highly recommend to start building systems with security in mind, which authorization and access control is a big part of it. So it can't just be bolted on at the end. This is something that needs to be a part of your considerations from the get-go. Exactly. You should think about it from from day one, basically. And where do you suppose we're headed in terms of authorization? What does the future look like? What sort of technologies are going to make this easier for all of us? Yeah, so there are a few different aspects of authorization because what we found when we created a list of the OS top 10 for APIs, there is no one way to do authorization. Because if we think, for example, if we compare authorization and authentication, these are two different mechanisms. Because when it comes to authentication, it's usually done in one place. You have one login endpoint. You have one provider to provide you access, or maybe a few. But when it comes to authorization, it's basically a mechanism that lives almost in every part of your application. In almost every piece of code, should have some authorization checks. Every piece of code that is exposed to the users, obviously. Uh, so authorization is basically a very widespread mechanism. You can find it in the API gateway, in the configuration files, and also in the code itself. So in a high level, there are some solutions that try to build you know, this umbrella that can provide you different types of authorization mechanisms under the same framework. And the open policy agent, the OPA is one of them. How do you strike that balance between, you know, as you describe, consistent and ongoing checks of authorization, but also staying out of the user's way of not throwing up frustrating roadblocks? 
yeah, this is a very hard challenge. And I think if we take a look at one of the recent breaches when it comes to localization, and by the way, the, the most critical localization problem today, it's called the broken object level localization. This is mm -hmm. something that uh, was found recently, uh, last week in Facebook. And we, during the last six months, we could find authorization breaches in Uber, Shopify, and almost every big company, uh, this specific vulnerability. So when you talk about this type of authorization problem, about uh, broken object level authorization, you can see that uh, these big companies like Uber and Facebook, they have a lot of resources when it comes to security, and they have very talented engineers. So it's not, you know, it's not like a, a, a mistake of someone who is new in the field. But I think the main reason why we can see so many authorization problems is because of uh, the phase of deployment. You know, today with the, with the concept of DevOps and the fact that companies deliver a few times, sometimes every minute, companies can deliver new versions hundreds of times a day. I think this is one of the main problems that opens the door for authorization problems. Basically, the phase of deployment is too, is too fast. So we need to, to slow things down, uh, check ourselves when it comes to uh, that development pace. Exactly, exactly. I, think, I, I feel that, I mean, you can't really slow things down, but you need to integrate the authorization checks and the security checks in general uh, into your life cycle, right? You can't just deliver a new code and new features without reviewing them. And I think this is a very important lesson that many companies have learned recently. So with everyone working remotely these days, you know, thanks to this global pandemic, what sort of problems does that present for us? Does this open up additional vulnerabilities? Yeah. So I think the fact that today so many people work remotely, together with the fact that uh, many companies move to the cloud and to microservices architectures that are heavily based on APIs, it makes it much more challenging to define the barriers, the security mechanisms. And this is something that we should keep in mind. And I think this is the, the fact that we, that we are working remotely today opens the door for many authorization types of attacks, as we talked about. And it's very important to understand what devices you include in your network and which are the employees that you give access to. All right, Joe, what do you think? Interesting interview, Dave. One of the things that Anand is talking about here when he talks about permissions is the principle of least privilege, which means that you give the user the permissions that they need to do their jobs for the shortest amount of time you can to give it to them. And when they ask for more permissions, you evaluate whether or not it, you need it and you give it to them for, you know, if they only need it one time for, for a day, then you give it to them for a day and then you take it back. And it sounds like a big security hassle to do this, but there are products out there that help you automate this. The retention of these privileges is probably impacted by the remote work situation because a year ago, or actually let's think two years ago, people were operating with a certain idea of what the future was going to look like, right? <laughs> right. it did not include everybody leaving their offices and going home. So right. now the IT and the security staff have to shift gears without having the time to plan for it or the budget to prepare for it. It's been a real hassle, mm -hmm. <laughs> to say the least. Yeah. Well, it's been a year now, though, so I, I would imagine most right. organizations have sort of settled into some sort of new normal. Yeah, and I think what's interesting is that there's a good chance that a lot of these organizations aren't going back to having people in the office. They're finding right. their productivity is fine, or maybe even better, with people working at home. I'm not the kind of guy that likes to work at home. I like to have an office to go to. I like to see people and collaborate with them in person. 
I did not know that OWASP had developed a top 10 list of common vulnerabilities for APIs. I think that's great. And I, I looked it over. It's awesome. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of it boils down to permission checking or authorization. In the security field, we have this thing called AAA, right? It's, it's authentication, authorization, and auditing. And Anon is correct. When you start building anything, you have to start with this in mind. And every mm. piece of code should have an authorization check. At least it probably should also, if you're talking about zero trust, it should probably have an authentication check as well. And how, how that authentication check happens can vary by the implementation. But the, the idea that most of the vulnerabilities that are in this OWASP top 10 for API are essentially just oversharing vulnerabilities, right? They're, mm-hmm. they're giving every user too much permission. So once they authenticate a user and they validate that the user is who they say they are through whatever means they have, they don't validate that the user is authorized to access the information because the developers go, okay, fine. Well, we've, we've got the user in. We know who that person is. We kind of trust that person. And we're going to believe that they're not going to go looking for things they shouldn't. Well, you should never believe that. <laughs> People are going to do that. And not only that, but if a malicious actor ever gets a hold of someone's API credentials, whatever it is, they're certainly going to do it. Yeah, I think it's it's a real issue here, too, where people, the longer they're with an organization, they tend to collect permissions. Yeah. Uh, over time, if if the permissions don't automatically expire, they you know so say, oh, I need access to this, and and they'll get access to it, and then no one really remembers that they have access, and so yep. you have someone who's been working for you for a decade, and inadvertently they have the keys to the kingdom. You right. Know? Yep. <laughs> so I had uh, to- something very similar. We had a document management system that I used to manage early on in my career, shortly before I became a web developer. I was uh, a system administrator on a document management system. And one of my jobs was to assign permission to people to different folders and projects. And Mm. these people needed the access. And chances are they may have needed the access forever, but they probably didn't. Yeah. (laughs) But but they had it forever. You're absolutely right. This is what happens. Yeah. Until until that person left the company, at which point in time their account was suspended and they didn't have access to anything. Because, again, we're talking about the difference between authentication and authorization. Once I suspend their account, they can't authenticate. But once they can authenticate, they're authorized to view way too much information. Right. All right. Well, our thanks to Anand Shkedi for joining us. We do appreciate him taking the time. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. And we want to thank the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our coordinating producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. 